welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Genesis 8, starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man." From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I have established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you and we start this with prayer because we want something. We want something from you that we can't do ourselves. Lord, we gather today to, to drink the living water, to eat heavenly bread, to see the light of the world, to worship the I am, to abide in the vine, to follow the way, to hear the truth, and to receive the resurrection and the life. That's something that none of us can make happen. Lord, all your servants that have come up here to read the word and worship and even to preach, Lord, this is something only you can do. And yet we come before you with joy and boldness and excitement because you have done this again and again for us. And so we pray, Lord, come, send your spirit in a unique way to be with us, Lord. We are utterly dependent on him. 
We pray that you would give new spiritual life to those who don't know you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would revive those who have become hardened, have become callous in their hearts toward you, have become cynical, have become dry and withered in their faith. Lord, we pray that your spirit would would so breathe life into them that, that we'd walk out of here renewed. And we pray for those here, here, Lord, who have come in a way that don't have any particular struggle and are walking very close to you, Lord. And we just pray that this would be a time of great encouragement and feeding to them. And we pray for our kids that are in this room and those who are in children's, Lord. We pray that they would experience you, the living God. That we'd all leave here knowing that you had fulfilled your promise to revive your people and to strengthen your people and to feed your people. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're in this Advent series, and it's a series to prepare our hearts for Christmas. Advent means arrival, and what we're looking at in this service is how God prepared his people for the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, through the covenants in Scripture. And so we're going through the covenants and seeing how they point forward to the coming of Christ and Christmas. Christmas is awesome, guys. Christmas is great because the world has already decorated for this. It's really great. The world puts up the decorations. The world puts up the lights. The world even plays some of our hymns in stores, you know? And then it's for us, guys, as people following Jesus to bring the meaning, to point them to the meaning of Christmas. And so what we want to do during this time of practicing Advent is make sure that we are tuned to the meaning of Christmas, that we're tuned to what's going on here. And we do that through practicing Advent. And you guys who weren't here last week, we do have some Advent guides for you guys. I mean, get them over email, PDF. Um, We have printed ones as well. But what we have for you guys to do is every Sunday up until Christmas Eve, and including Christmas Eve, you'll have a reading, you'll light a candle, you sing a song. There's some crafts and things for you guys to do. But we really want to, you know, help you guys to do this. Josh put together these great Advent guides. So please be involved in that too. But we're going to find the meaning of Christmas. We're going to find the meaning of Jesus' coming through looking at these covenants. And God made covenants to different people. He made them to, we got Adam down here, right? We got the tree and the snake. That's where that's kind of a masculine invite card. We got covenant to Adam, covenant to Noah, covenant to Abraham, covenant to Moses, covenant to David, and then the covenant that came through the prophets of the new covenant. And we're going to look at each one of these covenants. This morning, we're going to look at the one to Noah, and this is one I was really excited to do. I'm really excited to do the one on Noah. I kind of made sure that it was, I was going to get it because it's really an interesting way that it points forward to Jesus. So this story is about an evil world. It's about an ark and it's about a flood. You guys remember back the, a couple weeks ago that God created this world to be a place of happiness and joy, reflecting God's glory. God created human beings in his image to live for him and to rule over his creation as his royal family, as his own children. The original humans were not content to do that. They rebelled against God. They wanted to be their own gods. They were banished out of the garden because of their sin. They were banished into a world that was cursed because of their sin. But before God sent them out of the garden, he killed some animals. He put some skins on them to remind them, I'm going to forgive your sin. And in addition to that, he made a promise that he was going to one day send a redeemer, born of a woman, to rescue the world and make all things right. We saw that last week one who would conquer the evil one and make all things new. And so then you have uh, Adam and Eve. They have their first kid, Cain. They name their kid Gotten. That's what Cain means, is Gotten. Some scholars think that they probably thought that that was the Redeemer. Kind of makes sense that there'll be a child born of the woman that's going to save the world. 
And they're like, got him. Couldn't be more wrong though, right? Because Cain actually kills his brother in cold blood. The first child there that they thought might be the redeemer is actually a murderer. Sin enters the world through Adam. It compounds each generation. That's what you see through the beginning of Genesis is each generation kind of worse than the one before. You can see this in the line of Cain because Cain's great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, you see in chapter four, if you take a look at it, Genesis 4.23, Lamech is there bragging about how murderous he is. This is Cain's descendant, even worse than Cain. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen, I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. It's like a mob boss or something like that, right? You can almost read it in that like, Zilla, uh, come, let me tell you, you know, that kind of a thing. But things got worse, guys. Every century, things got worse. And you see that in those lines through the first few chapters. It gets to the point where in Genesis 6-5, it says this. Take a look. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's depressing, right? Depressing to see where that whole thing had gone by chapter 6. And it's depressing to the Lord. Take a look at verse 6, chapter 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. When it says that he regretted, it doesn't mean that this was some sort of unexpected situation to God. God has no unexpected situations. But it is something that saddened him, deeply saddened him, that people had come to this point. And that sin, of course, moved God not only to be sad, but to judge it. Because God is righteous, and he never lets any sin forever go unpunished, right? So we see in verse 7, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animal, and creeping thing, and bird of heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. So what we're going to see here, this flood that happens, is the first of two global judgments. There's the flood, and then there's the one that we haven't yet experienced. It's coming at the end. Two big global judgments. This one was massive, guys. This one was so massive that almost every culture has a flood myth. Isn't that crazy? Even places that don't really have any water to have a flood. Places that are frozen, (laughs) that can't have floods. They have flood myths. And the reason is is because these things really happen. And the stories in these myths got changed over time and kind of corrupted. But something remains because this event left a huge cultural memory. In every single culture, it left a memory that something massive had happened. And guys, we sanitize this story so much, this whole story of Noah and the ark. When I first say Noah and the ark, you kind of get a little smile, don't you? We've sanitized this to the degree that it's not unusual to decorate a baby's room in Noah's ark. That's a little weird when you think about it, okay? It's a little weird when you think about it. You're like, Saying to your little kid, hey, one day God destroyed everybody except for eight people. Good night, little buddy. (laughs) Right? I mean, you'd think that something like this would be like, you know, you're going to have like Sodom and Gomorrah wallpaper too for babies' rooms, you know? (laughs) This is a major event. And I I know what it is. It's the animals. But do the zoo or something. Not this story. This is a story of judgment. This is an intense, intense story. God decided quite justly to judge the world and to put an end to evil. And I know some people read a story like this and they say, how could God do this? But they're the same people that usually will say, why doesn't God fix the world? Why does he allow all this evil in the world? And then we say, well, he's not going to. He's going to judge it. Well, I don't want him to do that either. 
It's like this is actually the way that he's responding quite reasonably to the sin in the world. So before he does judge, he decides to show mercy on one family. Look at verse 8, chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that great? Isn't the word but amazing there? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord tells Noah to build an ark, basically a big boat, big ship, to save his family and a whole bunch of animals in. And apparently he also had invited others to join. In 2 Peter 2.5, it says that Noah was a preacher. It says he was a herald of righteousness, which kind of implies that maybe he was even telling people about what this was and why this was important. But of course, no one else joined in. It was only Noah and his family. And the time came for the rains to start. Before that happened, God told Noah and his family to enter the ark. And then take a look at chapter 7, verse 16. It says that the Lord himself shut them in. That they went in and it was God himself that sealed them in to this place of protection. The flood comes, the waters rise, and all that's left of the human race is these eight people. Five months later, water recedes and all that. There's a fresh start. There's a whole new world that they just have to themselves. Kind of a strange thought, huh? This family is eight people and they come out and they're the only humans on the entire earth. And we can see this as a fresh start for humanity. Take a look at Genesis 8:20. So after the flood recedes, they come out of the ark. Verse 20 says in chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then listen to this part. And the Lord blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that sound like? And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground, all fish of the sea. Into your hand they will be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you every green plant, I give you everything. And so we can see here that God gives Noah and his family the same blessing he gave Adam and Eve. Go forth, multiply. And so we can see this as a fresh start of humanity. This is kind of a a recapitulation of chapter 2. That like he's giving them the blessing, he's sending them out. And then it says that God made a covenant promise with them after the flood. There's a few interesting things when Christina was reading it. It's kind of interesting that you can see in that covenant he makes with Noah, a covenant's a promise, so it's a promise he's making to them. Notice that the covenant was not only to Noah and all the people who would come after him, it's also to the animals. Look at Genesis 9, 8. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring, with every living creature. And so the Noahic covenant or the covenant to Noah is a covenant to care for all living creatures. It just shows God's care for the world that he's made. It's also a covenant, notice, that's against global catastrophe. Take a look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that I shall never again, uh, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. Now, it's specifically mentioning a flood there, but if you look in chapter 8, verse 22, the promise is a little broader. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this is a promise, guys, of sustaining the world. God is promising in the Noahic covenant to sustain the world until his kingdom comes. 
This is sometimes called the common grace covenant. Common grace is God's goodness to those who are even in rebellion against him. And so this covenant is a promise of God being good to humanity and sustaining the world even as they continue to be in rebellion against him. It's a common grace covenant. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45, he said that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. God being gracious to all. There's saving grace, special grace. That's God's salvation of us through Jesus, saving us from our sins, giving us heaven. That's a special grace or saving grace. And then there's common grace where God's just good to everybody. No matter how much they rebel against him, he continues to be good and generous. You remember Jesus said that we should be like him, right? And do good to our enemies because God is that kind of generous God. So this is a, a promise to sustain the world until his kingdom comes. And I think this would be particularly good news in our culture because our culture loves dystopian end-of-the-world stories. I love dystopian end-of-the-world stories. I'll just admit it up front. I love those. You know, as I'm going to get on the elliptical and I'm looking for things to watch, those of you catch my eye, I'm like, ooh, nuclear holocaust. You know, or climate catastrophe or alien invasion or zombies or obliteration by meteors or AI robots. I mean, there's all these different ways that the world completely comes to an end, right? And we love these movies. And the, It's interesting, guys. I think that says something about us. I doubt this was like the impulse of every human culture before. We're particularly focused on the end of the world as a culture. And we talk about all the different ways it could play out. We're always thinking it's imminent. Isn't that interesting? I think you should probably look at that itch in the people around you. There's something there. There's some sort of unnamed, vague sense of perhaps guilt, perhaps that we've broken this place, perhaps that a reckoning is coming, and they're right. Isn't that interesting? When we're thinking about the gospel, when we think about bringing the gospel to people, we should be thinking about what's the Lord doing in the culture? And there is a sense of dread. And that sense of dread has a gospel answer. And a lot of these stories actually have Noah figures in them, right? That are going to be the ones that continue the human race and lead people to survival. The Noahic covenant is the common grace covenant that no matter how much mankind sins against God, he's going to continue to sustain this world until the kingdom comes and he makes the whole world new. And next time he destroys, he's not going to destroy it with water. He's going to destroy it with fire. But he's going to destroy it with fire for the purpose of making it new. Okay? It's not just like he's going to throw it away, lights on fire, throws it in the trash can, dumpster fire. You know, Not that kind of thing. There is a burning that's going to occur to this world, but to make things new. Peter talks about it. He says this. He says, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. He's talking about Noah's time. But the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. That's a destruction we don't worry about as Christians, those of us who are in Christ. We don't fear. We actually look forward to that because, guys, we've read the whole book and we've seen the end of the story. And so we know when we talk about like the end of the world, 
that the end of the world really isn't the end. It's actually the beginning of the world to come and that this world was going to be set right and made new. And so notice, notice also, guys, that this covenant is a covenant of global ceasefire. Take a look at verse 12, chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every creature of all flesh. God chooses a really beautiful image as the symbol, as the sign of his covenant, the rainbow. And you think, okay, why a rainbow? What's the deal here? It actually has really cool significance. The rainbow is in the shape of a huge bow, war bow, like bow and arrow. That's what the kind of bow it is. As you guys were probably thinking like package bow. I did two for a long time too, but it doesn't really look like a bow. But what it does look like is it looks like a bow and arrow put horizontal, like a warrior would come home from war and come into his house and he would hang his bow up to say he's done. He's done fighting, right? The vertical is the attack, right? Horizontal is in the position of peace. The rainbow, when you see it, is God's war bow hung up for all to see, as if God's saying, I will not go to war with you today. Isn't that amazing? God's bow is hung up in the sky as a sign of God's patience and mercy that he's waiting and delaying judgment for another day. He's waiting a little bit longer for humanity to repent and return to him. It's a sign of his grace. And guys, I couldn't help but think this, but knowing this, isn't it strange in our day that this covenant sign, the rainbow, is used as a way for our culture to celebrate our sin against him? Isn't that a strange thing to do? It's a strange thing to do, right? It's particularly ungrateful that we would choose to taunt God with a symbol of this covenant of grace, this covenant of ceasefire. It's like our culture is like daring him to bring the bow down and use it against them. Oh, well, it's just crazy. God is so merciful and he's so gracious to continue to give time for repentance for people to come to him. And I think as our culture does this, I think we can all admit that we ourselves, right, have used that patience of his against him and have taunted him in our sin. Guys, the Noahic covenant is an amazing reminder of God's patience to sinners. He promises a ceasefire and that he will preserve the world until the coming of his kingdom when he's going to make all things new. The Noahic covenant too, guys, it points to our need for Jesus and Christmas in a great way. You're like, where's the Christmas? Okay, there's a little bit. The Noahic covenant points forward to our need for Christ and Christmas because, guys, one day God is going to take down his war bow from the sky and come in judgment one last time. And we see that, we see his grace, we see his patience, we see his mercy and waiting, but it's also a reminder that he does have a bow to use and it will come down. Jesus said that it will come down unexpectedly. Matthew 24, 36 says this, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the son, but the father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the question is, I think the most important question, 
is how can we as sinners, right, who deserve that judgment, that final judgment, how can we escape it? And, and the answer is that we escape the judgment the same way that Noah and his family did. It's by grace through faith. Hebrews eleven seven says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so we're saved the same way they were, by grace through faith. Not by getting into a wooden ark, but by getting into Christ. By getting into Christ. Because guys, Jesus is the true and better ark who will carry us through the waters of God's judgment safely into the world to come. Amen? Jesus is. Jesus is the true and better ark. He will carry us through the waters of judgment safely into the world to come. An ark not made with human hands, but it's been made with a human body, Jesus' own body. Jesus is the one we need to be inside to save us from God's judgment. Baptism actually is a symbol of this, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3. He says, In the days of Noah, the ark was prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Our baptism is actually a symbol that we have come into Christ and that we've been saved by passing through the waters of God's judgment. It's a symbol of that. The term for being in Christ, it might sound weird to you that I say the way that we get saved is by being in him, like Noah and his family are in the ark. That term, the theological term for that is union with Christ. That when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you became one with Christ, that God sees you as in Christ so that his righteousness is yours and your sin was his on the cross. And, and so when Jesus died on the cross, you died in him because you were in him in God's mind. Your union with Christ, Romans 6 talks about this, that when Christ died and was raised, that God sees you as being in him because you trust in him. You're united with Christ. You're one with him. Jesus is that true and better ark. Just like that wooden ark carried those eight sinners through the water and the waves just like pounded and beat this ship to protect the eight sinners that were in it. Jesus was bruised and battered and broken because he was carrying us in him. Isn't that amazing? So amazing the way it points to him. This is how it relates to Christmas, guys. Christmas is about the incarnation. Christmas is about God became a man. God the Son became a man incarnation, you know, incarnate, right? In flesh, in meat. He came in meat, right? Incarnation. He came in the flesh. He became a real human being, not just God in a man suit, but he became a real man both outside and inside with a real human soul. And he didn't stop being God, but he took on humanity to his deity, still staying God. We call it the hypostatic union. It's a great mystery, but we know that that's what happened. And the reason why God the Son became a man, Christmas, is so that he could wrap you up in him, up in his his body, and carry you safely through the judgment that your sins deserve on the cross, and to deliver you safely into the world to come like that family was. Isn't that amazing? That's what Christmas is about. Just like the Israelites, you know, they crossed through the, the Red Sea to go to the promised land, we have crossed through the waters of God's judgment to be safely delivered to the true promised land. And that true promised land is going to be this world made new, guys. And that's one of the promises of baptism is that if you trust in Christ, you're in him, such that you have already escaped the judgment. 
And I just say, if you guys, if you're trusting in Jesus or if you're just coming to trust in Jesus today and you haven't been baptized, let me know. Let Josh know. We'd love to baptize you as a picture of your union with Christ. That's what it's about. And if you haven't yet come to Christ, if you haven't yet entered into him to be the ark for you, your safe passage, guys, today is the day. Seriously, today is the day. Know for certain, guys, that there is one last and final judgment coming. He did it once. He's going to do it again. He's told us, and Jesus has told us, that what's happening right now is the only warning you're going to get. The only warning you're going to get is the preaching of the gospel. Okay? There's no other warning. You, there might be another day, and you'd be warned again like this, but this is, could very well be your last warning. He's not giving any other warnings to you besides the preaching of the gospel. And like in the time of Noah, the doors only open until the rain starts. Right? And then he shuts the door. He will shut the door that he's held open so long for you. And think about your life. Think about how long God has held that door open to you. And think about all the ways that God has reached out to you, whether it was just like in the goodness of life and in food and all these common grace things that are in this covenant, like the sun shining on you, the enjoyment of sports and friends and family, and maybe some of you had children and you knew then, like, okay, God's real because this is crazy, you know. And all the different ways God's brought you through all kinds of trials and difficulties, he's held the door open. And every time you've seen that rainbow, it's been like, okay, he's not going to war yet. He's holding on. He's waiting for you. But guys, that door will be shut one day. And there's no opening it once it's shut. Today's the day of salvation. And what the cool thing is, though, if today, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can be a Christian. I don't know if I can live like these people. You don't know these people, you know? They may not be living the way you think, but they are wonderfully transformed, and you will be wonderfully transformed too. But notice one thing. If you come to Christ today, he too will shut you in and seal you into Christ. You don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm going to get in the ark and come out and go in. No, no. Just as he sealed in Noah's family, he will seal you in by his spirit, and he will make you new, and you will experience that. What does it look like to enter into Christ? It looks like believing in him. The ark's a good image because it looks like sheltering in him, right? It looks like trusting in him that he's all the refuge you need. It looks like being persuaded in your heart that Jesus is yours and that you have life and salvation in him. This is what faith looks like. And that everything that Christ did for humanity, he did for you specifically. That's what it looks like to believe in him. That's what it looks like to enter into him. And just like Noah and his family emerged out of the ark alive into the new world to a new start, Christ is going, when he returns, is going to open up a new world to us. This world made new. Not a foggy, fairy kind of world, misty, light blue, harpy kind of place. No. This world made new. Wonderfully new without sin and suffering and sadness. And with animals. Which is interesting because... God loves the creation he made. He wasn't like he made this physical world and then people sinned and he goes, well, that was a bad idea. Let's get rid of that and never do that again. No, he redeems his entire created world. And the best thing of all about it is that we will live with him in that world with Jesus in the flesh. How does that sound? Don't you want to talk to him? I know you do already, but don't you want to talk to him in the flesh and talk to Jesus? Do you want to speak to him? Don't you want to know Jesus in the way you can know a personal, present friend? 
That's going to happen. He's going to be with us. He's going to make all things new. And one other problem that Christ solves that we see in the life of Noah, and this won't take very long, is there's one other problem with Noah. He needed forgiveness. He needed shelter. He needed protection. But Noah needed something else. And this is something that Christ provides us. And it's the need for personal transformation. Personal transformation. There's a curious incident. Christina didn't read it. Didn't have her read this. But there's a curious incident about Noah and his family after they get out of the ark. Take a look at verse 18, chapter 9. It says, The sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Okay, now this sounds like a really bad family Christmas party, right? So Noah gets drunk, he's passed out naked, a bunch of gossip and cursing ensues, and the party's over, right? This is disappointing, okay? Remember, this is the fresh start. I don't know how long this took. It takes a little while to grow a vineyard, but not long. Okay? This is very disappointing. What happened to humanity's fresh start? I mean, didn't God get rid of all the bad people? Didn't you think that was the problem? I'm like, that was the problem. We just need to get rid of the bad people. Everything's going to be great. We got the righteous little family and we got all the bad people gone, right? All those worldly people that were going to corrupt our holy little family, they're gone. And now what? Listen to what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He said this. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people out there somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and all that was necessary was to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Isn't that true? The line between good and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart. There are no perfectly righteous people. And the truth is, there's enough residual evil in me or in any one of you to fill the world all over again with evil, to respawn every form of depravity. Take the best of us in this room. It wouldn't be me. It'd be some of you guys. We could vote. Have you restart it? And I guarantee you, every form of depravity within a few generations would exist in that world. The evil's in us, right? And the proof is in Noah, guys. It did respawn. Okay, we ran the experiment. We had Noah. We had his righteous family. And it respawned in that world. Guys, sometimes we think if we isolate ourselves and we isolate our families from all the evil influences in the world, and then we find out, guys, that the evil we were trying to keep out is in us. Right? It's in us. The sin's in us. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just save us from the judgment of God. He saves us from ourselves. He doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sin. He is gradually in this life saving us from the power of our sin. And even better than that, Jesus doesn't just gradually save us from the power of our sin in this life. One day he's going to save us from the very presence of our sin. Won't that be great? Won't it be amazing to not have temptation for sin? Won't it be amazing to not be the one to ruin the party? Won't it be amazing? 
The presence of sin. So we have the gospel removes the penalty of our sin, already has, if you're in Christ, is gradually removing the power of sin in our lives, and that one day in the world to come, completely removing the presence of sin. You're going to feel amazing, guys, in your resurrected body without any impulse for sin. I mean, all the ways you've ever wanted to like love and serve other people, but you've been so hindered by you and the sin and the flesh still in you. You're just going to feel so light and alive. It's going to be amazing. It's going to feel like we were like 600-pound people, and now we're suddenly freed from everything we were carrying around. It's going to be amazing. Unlike Noah and his family, we're not going to ruin the world to come with our sin, right? Before we set foot in that world, Jesus is going to resurrect us. He's going to make us new, entirely new, inside and out, and none of us will bring any sin to ruin that party. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful for Jesus, the true and better ark. And uh, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, help us just to know deep in our bones, deep in our hearts, deep in our souls that we are forgiven, that you have taken away all the penalty of our sin, that we're forgiven. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we also ask that you would help us to know deep in our bones, deep in the depths of our soul that we are free. That your spirit, as he feeds us the presence of Christ in this bread and in this cup, as he feeds us on the presence of Christ spiritually, and we are strengthened, we pray, Lord, that you give us freedom from the power of sin. We pray that this would be true drink and true food to nourish us and strengthen us against our battle with the enemy, the flesh, with all the temptations of the world. And we pray, Lord, too, as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would know deep down in our bones, in the depth of our soul, we would know that we have a future. In Christ, you will open up to us an amazing new world that you will create out of this one to enjoy you forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would just testify to our hearts that these little bits that we eat and drink are foretaste there. They're tiny tidbits off the table of a feast that we will eat with you forever. We love you, Lord. We pray for those of you who are just even at this moment have become aware of the realities of sin and judgment and grace and your love and your invitation. And we just pray, Lord, that they would act on it, that they wouldn't put it off to another day because we have no guarantee of another one. We pray, Lord, that they would come to you and that they would realize that they've been fighting their joy all their lives and that they've found the one who can make them ridiculously happy. We've experienced that. We pray that they would as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps. 